Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly. Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role-play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing, but I love watching them have an adventure. Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology. I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds amazing. (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A- L-I-E dot com. That's SeekAnomaly.com to find out more. Chapter 23, Christmas on the Closed Ward. Was this why Dumbledore could no longer meet Harry's eyes? Did he expect to see Voldemort staring out of them, afraid, perhaps, that their vivid green might turn suddenly to scarlet with cat-like slits for pupils? Harry remembered how the snake-like face of Voldemort had once forced itself out of the back of Professor Quirrell's head and ran his hand over the back of his own, wondering what it would feel like if Voldemort burst out of his skull. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, we have two really exciting pilgrimages available for our listeners to join right now. One is the Wuthering Heights pilgrimage with Sana. And the other one is a Northanger Abbey trip in Bath with me and Margaret H. Wilson. You can find out about both of those at readingandwalkingwith.com. We also just want to let everybody know that we have a class with wonderful, sometimes co-host Jolie Doggett. She is going to be teaching a class for us called Finding the Right Words About Love. And it is a journaling class. And Jolie is just an incredible classroom facilitator and a beautiful writer and everybody you should sign up for that class and you can find out more about it at notsorryworks.com. And Matt, the other announcement that we have to make is our Every Flavored Bean bonus for patrons only conversation. And you and I are excited because we find out in this chapter that Harry is an excellent secret keeper. 
He did not even tell Ron and Hermione about Neville's parents. And it made me feel guilty about my secret ethics. And so you and I are going to talk about the ethics around secrets. I, you weren't supposed to say that part, <laughs> Vanessa. <laughs> there are rules to keeping secrets. I think different people have different stringencies around yeah. them. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm, I, we may have different stringencies around the way we keep secrets. So this will be interesting. Okay, we'll see. Vanessa, you're telling us a story this week about vulnerability. What do you have for us? So Matt, as I just keep talking about, because it is the only thing that has happened to me recently, I got ankle surgery not long ago. Because of ankle surgery, I can't really leave the house. So nothing else is happening to me. So that's why I keep talking about it. But I think we can all agree that surgery is quite a vulnerable thing. And I have been very excited about this surgery because I've been walking around on a defective ankle for over four years now. And so I was just really looking forward to it. I was like, my life is going to change. I have a date in mind when I can go on my first jog. I'm not going to be in pain anymore on pilgrimages. Like, this is very exciting. And then the night before surgery, my 11-year-old stepdaughter, it was a Thursday night, and she doesn't usually come over on Thursday nights, Then she requested to come over for dinner. And we were like, of course, we love that. And she joined for dinner. And then she said, can I also come over tomorrow night after your surgery? And I, I think she was just being sweet and supportive. But I was like, oh, no, the child is afraid I'm going to die. And children know more than we do. <laughs> like... <laughs> Am I going to die? She's got the shine. <laughs> she she was not worried about me. I think she was really just being emotionally supportive and was like, this is a big deal for Vanessa. I want to see her before and after, right? Like, I don't know what it was, but there was something about looking at this child the night before surgery where I was like, oh my God, I could die during surgery. There's a non-zero chance. Right. That's right. I could come out, right, like there's a non-zero chance that the surgery goes poorly and maybe my leg is actually worse than it was before, right? Like there are all these non-zero chances. And of course, I know that the most dangerous part of surgery is driving to the surgery, right? Like logically, I know that. And yet looking at this beautiful child, I was like, oh, man. And so I did something that I'm not particularly proud of. I started processing out loud what should happen if I die in front of the 11-year-old the night before I had surgery? Oh, good. With her. Yeah. With her. Good. With oh, her good. and Peter. And I was trying to be cheerful about it and, like, give good news. But I, like, turned to Peter and I was like, I would actually like Ellen, our older kid, to get the car. You can buy yourself a new mm. car. She's about to turn 16. Let her have the old car. And then we have to make sure that we leave aside enough money so that when the little one turns 16, she gets a car because that's only fair. To be clear, I'm alive. Neither kid is getting a car now that I'm alive. Like, these are right. not things that we're going to do alive. <laughs> I reminded Peter that Ariana wants me to die a little bit because she really wants my yellow chair. And I sent an email to Peter, my older brother, and Ariana with, like, my wishes for distributing my retirement and whatever else I have. And looking back, Matt, I wish I hadn't processed this in front of the child. This, like, email I sent was unnecessary. I trust Peter to distribute my few assets, right? Like, he might have kept the car for himself and not given it, right? Like, he might not have done exactly what I wished in that moment. But, like, he would have done great with it. 
this was unnecessary and unhelpful. And yet, that is what I find to be true about vulnerability. When you are vulnerable, you can behave not in ways that you are proud of. And the thing to do is to pause and be like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. Maybe I should stay quiet and sit in that vulnerability and process this with my adult husband and not with a child, whatever it is. (laughs) But I think like that is the thing about vulnerability, right? Is that we want to act even if there's nothing to, to do. It is so uncomfortable that we will start doing things that make no sense just in order to shake off the feeling. Vanessa, I think it's a great story. The word vulnerability comes from a Latin word, which means to wound. And when I was thinking about the etymology, I was thinking, huh, I think about vulnerability as being susceptible to being wounded, not mm-hmm. as already wounded. But I mean, the fact of your injury kind of shows like when you're wounded, you're also more susceptible to more wounding, which makes you overly defensive or try to compensate in other ways and leads to like, you know, from the outside actions that might not seem rational or necessary. But when you're experiencing it, when you feel at risk, especially if you're hurting and feeling at risk, then you start to do things that are a little bit extra to try to protect yourself, right? Like, and I can imagine this conversation you had with Amy that I'm sure you were being lighthearted and joking because you were trying to make yourself laugh and make her laugh, right? Because you were worried that she was worried and she probably was a little bit worried because she was probably feeling vulnerable and worried about you, and right? But then you also do that. You <laughs> do a little extra and all the things you were saying, right? And th- this is what happens when we feel at risk. And I also think there's something about like the fact that you're sitting around the table with the people you love most before your surgery that like there's a particular kind of vulnerability that comes from the people who you love most because you know that deep love also means there's possibility for deep hurt like this 11 year old Amy is a person you cherish and love and you're imagining her hurt if this irrational thing you're thinking happens and you're trying to make light of it and so like vulnerability just cuts so many ways it moves across our relationships even the best and warmest ones in complicated ways and that the story you told is a good depiction of that thank you matt it's time for the 30 second recap you are just back from vacation you're probably rested and gonna do a better job than you've ever done before on your mark get set go so they're coming home and Harry feels awful ab- about everything and he thinks he calls it and he decides to run away and then uh, the guy in the painting says, don't do it because uh, Dumbledore said so and Harry's like, Murr. and then Hermione shows up and Hermione's like, stop being uh, stupid and Ginny's like, yeah, why don't you talk to me? I've been through it and he's like, oh, I guess I guess things are okay and then they go to, to St. Mungo's and they go to the ward and stitches, no stitches and then they see the clothes part and then uh, there are some some... People who show up, including Neville's uh, grandmother and Neville, who are visiting his parents. That was excellent. The only thing you forgot was Phineas Nigellus's name. I think I almost said Figellus Ninius. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. Vanessa, are you ready to do a 30-second recap? I was born ready, Matt. I'll count you in. Thank you. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is just like deep in shame. He's like... I attacked Mr. Weasley. Dumbledore's not talking to me. Everybody is avoiding me. They're downstairs getting ready for Christmas. And they're like, I think Harry needs rest. But he's just like deep into shame spiral. Then eventually Hermione comes and is like, dude, get out of it. And then everybody follows suit. They open all of their presents. Percy sends back his present. No note. And then we see Neville with his parents. And he like keeps taking these wrappers from his mom. (laughs) 
And see, I got to just do like color commentary because you had covered all the important stuff. But that's where, I mean, it's in the details that, that life has lived, Vanessa. And I feel like occasionally we have defended Percy on this podcast. This, oh, no note when your father's in the hospital. There's no way he doesn't know. There's no way Percy doesn't know. Vanessa, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about in response to your story, the idea that like being wounded makes you more vulnerable to being wounded and like vulnerability becomes like this feedback loop, right? It's like Harry's very much in that space. Harry like suffered this in initial trauma, one he doesn't remember, but the effects of which he obviously lives with, which is that he has this original trauma like this of, of his parents being murdered. And that has left him vulnerable to the Dursleys and for years. And he's more vulnerable in all kinds of ways to all kinds of folks. And we learned, you know, a couple chapters ago that he's also vulnerable to Voldemort entering his mind due to this event 15 years ago. And so he's feeling very wounded. He's been wounded. He's feeling vulnerable. And what happens like in the beginning of this chapter is they're going home from having visited Arthur at St. Mungo's. And Harry's just like, I am putting everybody at risk. Like I am the weak link. Voldemort can get in my head. He is going to use me to hurt all these people I love. And he's like, because I'm vulnerable, I'm making them vulnerable. So he comes to this decision to like leave all his supports, the only people who can love him and protect him the way he deserves. And he decides to leave them behind for their protection because he doesn't want them to be vulnerable. He sort of exchanges increased vulnerability of his own because he thinks he's already a lost cause for their protection. And it just got me thinking about how, you know, what you were saying in your story, how like when you are in this wounded place and you're trying to protect as much of what you value as you can protect, you don't always make the most sound decisions. But I think in particular, there's like a, and this is now not in reference to your story, <laughs> Vanessa, because like, honestly, I'm not even joking because I don't, I don't think that's what you're doing. I think in your story, you were actually actively trying to take care Poorly. of Amy because you thought she was scared. And so you're trying to like joke about it. But like, I think you also, when you've been wounded, quite understandably, you get kind of self-centered, right? You're like, I need to protect me. Now, Harry's not doing that in one sense because he thinks he's being selfless. He thinks he's being very Gryffindor, very heroic. He's like, oh, they're all at risk because of me, so I'm going to separate myself from them. But what we're reminded of in this chapter quite clearly by Hermione and Ginny is that this self-centeredness has made him forget the resources he has around him, right? This self-centeredness has made him forget that Ginny has already been possessed and that he can actually talk to her and talk to others and she can help him sort through what he's going through and actually he becomes less vulnerable if he doesn't turn away but stays there, right? And so, like, there's this interesting dynamic that's going on that vulnerability makes us turn inward even when protection might be reaching out to others for for support. And often it's because we want to support others. We want to help others and not make them shoulder the burden of our vulnerability. Yeah, my beloved dog is almost 11 years old and she's starting to get arthritis in her front mm. paw. And she really doesn't want us to touch it, right? And we have like salve that can help, right? And that is an instinct in all of us, right? Like, no, you're gonna make it worse. Things are already bad. Yep. And I have adjusted to this. Please just don't make it worse. Harry is so deep in self-loathing because he believes that he has caused this pain yeah. that he doesn't want to hear them say it, right? He's yep. like, I can't look at Molly and have her say, you attacked Arthur. So I'm going to say it to myself first and I'm just going to leave, right? He is in part leaving because he's worried that he's putting everybody at risk, but he isn't 
also in part thinking that he should leave because he just can't stand to be around them and feel the way he does, feel like he has hurt them, feel like they don't want to look at him, right? Hermione even makes a joke about it. Yeah, you're right. Harry is like, they can't even look at me, right? And Ginny is like, what are you talking about? You haven't looked at us. And Hermione is like, maybe you guys have both been looking at each other and missing it. And really, it's that Harry isn't looking at them because he's so scared that he's just constantly assuming bad intentions. And, you know, when we're vulnerable, it's just so interesting that we bare teeth and try to create more and more distance when we're vulnerable, when really, obviously, the thing that would help us more is being like, here is my paw. Please put the salve on it, right? Or, hey, guys, I'm scared. And then the adults could be like, that's not what's going on, dude. I, that's really right. I mean, it's, it's a essential part of what's going on here, the dynamic, that Harry's not just trying to protect them. He's also trying to protect himself from the resentment he imagines they bear toward him. And he can't bear that from them because they've been so important to him. And, you know, he is selfish because of his vulnerability. He's also just selfish because <laughs> we love Harry. But, you know, after he gets this realization that, oh, maybe I'm not possessed, he gets really happy. And what he doesn't do is what Ginny does for him. Right. He doesn't go to Ginny and be like, boy, this must be really hard for you, Ginny. You are also wounded and you are also feeling vulnerability right now. It was your dad. It actually did happen to you. Maybe I can support you. Like Ginny has the wherewithal to come to him to support him in his vulnerability. But in the aftermath of her doing that, he's like, oh, I'm Scott Free. I can enjoy (laughs) Christmas now. Instead of like turning to Ginny and be like, oh, Ginny, I'm so sorry. You must be going through something here. How can I support you? He doesn't really do that, you know? And so that his selfishness isn't just from the vulnerability, although it's partly from it. And understandably, it's also just him being kind of selfish in this chapter. It's also about his underlying vulnerability, right? Like, we never know. Like, just because he's like, oh, I probably didn't attack Arthur doesn't mean that he's not still scared in all of these other ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is remarkable that this is the chapter where two people call out Harry. Phineas Nigellus is like, oh, my God, dude. Like, don't leave. Dumbledore is giving you orders. How about you assume some good intentions? Teenagers are so annoying, and they think they're the only people who have feelings. And then Hermione essentially says the same thing. Hermione is like, oh, my God, can you please not make this about you and start yelling at all of us? Like, chill. And so I do think it's funny that two people are like, in your vulnerability, can you actually still pull it together and be, like, a decent member of this community? Speaking of vulnerability causing selfishness, Mm. Vanessa, there's a moment in this chapter which you touched upon in your 30-second recap, which is just such a painful moment. As you noted, it's Christmas morning, and Percy sends his Christmas jumper back. We hear from George that Molly's weeping downstairs because it's been sent back. It's such a difficult moment to read because as I was saying in response to your story, like the people who who we love most also have the capacity to hurt us most because that love is deep. And you know, her husband's had a near fatal attack. He's in St. Mungo's. The wound has not resolved yet. They feel confidence, but it hasn't resolved yet. And so there's still this uncertainty. And on Christmas morning to have no note, as George says, no communication from, from your own child, just a return of the gift, the traditional gift that you get all your children every year. She's incredibly vulnerable to her children to their capacity to hurt her and there's this is one of those moments you know sometimes we defend percy and talk about the complicated dynamics of his family and why his loyalties might 
manifest differently than other people's loyalties in this family and why he might have the desires and wishes and ambitions that he has. But this is just a moment that's hard to forgive of his selfishness, of him not realizing how much this is going to hurt his mom and how vulnerable his mom and dad are right now. And we wish he had tried to do something slightly more gracious. And I think that there's a kind of generous interpretation of it, which is like he feels vulnerable at the ministry. He has these ambitions. He has these ambitions because he grew up in this poor family. He doesn't want that for his future and all these things. So maybe this vulnerability was pushing him towards this selfishness. But yeah, it's kind of hard to it's hard to read. I mean, if you don't want this in your house and you find it embarrassing, burn it right? Like, you can trash it without sending it back. He is doing this to wound. And it is especially heartbreaking because Molly was actually vulnerable in sending a Christmas sweater, right? They have not spoken in months. And Molly is like, but do you know what? Of course. I like, he is my son and it is Christmas. And every year since he was born, I have sent him a Christmas sweater. So even though we're not speaking, I am going to reach out a hand, right? The last communication that we know Molly and Percy have had is that Molly went to his flat and Percy didn't open the door. And she is still sending him a Christmas gift. And like, I can imagine just hoping for a thank you note or, right, like hoping for a missive. I hope dad is okay. Anything. And instead, forget nothing. Like, nothing would have been something. This actually feels cruel. And to me, like, I know almost nothing about psychology, but I do understand that, like, at some point in growing up, you have to differentiate yourself from your parents and say, like, what they do doesn't represent me. I am my own person. So he believes that his parents make him vulnerable, that his parents are on the wrong side of history, and therefore he has to separate himself from them in order to have the career that he wants to have. But he's wrong. His parents don't make him vulnerable. Nobody thinks that. People are very capable of being like, Arthur Weasley, super liberal and wonderful. Percy Weasley, close-minded in the back pocket of Cornelius Fetch. Like, we rarely look at a parent And then see a kid and be like, ah, you represent that parent, right? If there's a parent screaming on the sidelines at a soccer game, we don't look at the six-year-old and go like, wow, you're probably going to turn out just like that. So Percy is even wrong that he's vulnerable. And I do think there's an argument that some of the most dangerous people in the world are people who feel vulnerable when they're not, right? They're doing the growling thing, like my paw hurts, and there's no paw injury, and you're like, so you're just snapping at yeah. everyone because you're like, just tr- everyone stay away. And yeah, Percy, bad, bad, bad. I think that's right. I mean, this is an even more generous reading, right? It's not just like, oh, I have ambitions because I didn't enjoy growing up in a family of lesser means. This is like, oh, no, you are on the wrong side of history. Like, you are actually making vulnerable the historic ministry of Cornelius Fudge, which is going to be so important to the future of Muggle whatever, right? Let's just... He's probably more in that state of mind. But you're right. Like, he's imagining a vulnerability. And that imagined vulnerability is distracting him from an actual vulnerability because they're all super vulnerable to Voldemort, (laughs) right? That's the other thing that's going on is that it's not just Harry. This is what the Order of the Phoenix knows and Dumbledore's army intuits. And, like, the ministry is ignoring is that the events of the last several months mean that all of them are uniquely vulnerable and they're transferring these vulnerabilities they don't want to face onto ones that are easier for them to react to, respond to, and feel safe 
from, right? Which is like sending a jumper back to my mom. Now I feel protected. Ha ha. I took action when actually that is just making them more vulnerable to the threat that the Death Eaters pose. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Matt, on this theme that like the vulnerable version of ourselves is not necessarily a better version of ourselves, we get reintroduced to Gilderoy Lockhart in this chapter. And Gilderoy Lockhart vulnerable with this like memory charm bounced back onto him has less power. And Lockhart with less power is a good thing. The way it happened, not a good thing. But, like, he does have less power than he used to have, and that's great. But vulnerable Lockhart, while, like, maybe sweet and charming, still has the capacity to be deeply sexist. Yeah. And I I just think that sometimes we can see people become vulnerable and mistake vulnerability for virtue. And it is not the same. Like Lockhart is walking around the ward fairly harmlessly being like, I'll sign autographs. I'll sign your autograph, which we can say this is harmless. If you also have a memory problem and are on the same ward as him, that is probably very annoying. But he's walking around and he sees Harry and Ron and he's offering to give his autograph. But then he turns to Jenny and is like, you can help me, and treats her like his assistant instantly. Like, he is vulnerable, but also that can make Jenny feel really bad and small. Just because he's vulnerable doesn't mean that that's not awful. That's right. I mean, he walks around handing out autographs and like that's he doesn't remember that he's handed out autographs fine that's the like vulnerability and memory charm thing but also he's the kind of person that thinks everybody wants his eight by ten <laughs> right that's the part that the vulnerability doesn't have anything to do with and that he's still kind of a jerk right like he's still not a super pleasant person to be around i mean i think like you said at the beginning of your comment like the the fact of our vulnerability doesn't make us better or worse than we were you know than we are outside bracketing that vulnerability it just is a fact of of who we are and lockhart as a person who's 
suffering and is in St. Mungo's deserves the protection any person deserves. But he also deserves to be treated as a full person, which is like when you have bad behavior, then we name the behavior and we try to prevent the behavior. There's a, a movie I love a lot, an animated movie, which is about the aftermath of the, the dropping the atomic bomb in Hiroshima called Barefoot Gen. And Gen and this little boy that he's running around with in the comics and in the and in the movie, they're paid some money by a wealthy family to care for a guy who has radiation sickness and a bunch of burns on his body. And he's a I mean, he's awful. He's awful to them, right? And finally they just get fed up with him and like get into a fight with him. <laughs> right? Yeah. And at the end, he's just like, Thank you. You're the first person that's actually treated me like treating me like a human like everyone else ignores me avoids me because i'm gonna die but you actually like showed me the dignity of recognizing that people should behave well and that i wasn't behaving well right like you held me to a standard and that actually like dignified my personhood in a way that nobody else has had right and like yeah there's something about like when you let it pass for Lockhart, that's protecting a part of him that doesn't need protection the part of him that needs protection is the memory loss is the other vulnerable things The sexism doesn't need protection, and the staff and the children shouldn't do anything to protect it. Matt, I do want to say that there is one person in this chapter who doesn't, isn't presenting as vulnerable at all, and that is the patient, Arthur Weasley. Arthur Weasley, (laughs) with a a wound that won't close, is like... I don't care. I'm trying stitches. I'm becoming friends with the young healer on the ward and we're going rogue. What, Harry, you got me a bunch of useless stuff that's muggle. That's awesome. Hey, kids, what'd you get for Christmas? And like, he's fine now, right? Like he is not at death's door. But I just love that we get this picture of a patient who's like, what's up, y'all? I know. Hope this wound doesn't close. Otherwise, we won't be able to try a bunch of stuff. <laughs> right. He's like having the time <laughs> of his life. And I just, I yeah. I do want to say, though, I think part of that is that he trusts that he's in good hands at St. Mungo's. His family yep. is coming to visit, right? Like, he has so much privilege. Yep. He's like there from the Ministry of Magic and, you know, and he's like a white guy. Like, he's going to get treated well at this hospital. Um, and so, like, yeah. you know, he gets to have a lot of confidence. I think not feeling vulnerable is a privilege. But I do love the way he's coasting through. Yeah. Vanessa, now it's time for our sacred reading practice. And this week, we are once again engaging in this practice of sacred imagination. In sacred imagination, we read a short passage. This is derived from Jesuit reading practices. The Jesuits are a Roman Catholic order of priests. And while I'm reading the passage, you know, we're supposed to try to inhabit the passage more directly than we might when we're reading otherwise, like to try to really imagine ourselves into the scene in some direct or intimate way. It may be as one of the characters, it may be sort of more fly on the wall, but directly there. So you can try to experience all the sensations, maybe even sensations that aren't described by the passage. And then afterwards, we'll talk about what the imagination opened up for us. Great. So we just finished talking about the encounter with Gilderoy Lockhart, and the scene we're going to use to engage in sacred imagination is directly after their first meeting of with Lockhart when they're pulled into the closed portion of the ward, and they're kind of getting their lay of the land for what this closed ward is like and what the patients who reside there, what they're going through. Harry looked around. 
The ward bore unmistakable signs of being a permanent home to its residents. They had many more personal effects around their beds than in Mr. Weasley's ward. The wall around Gilderoy's headboard, for instance, was papered with pictures of himself, all beaming toothily and waving at the new arrivals. He had autographed many of them to himself in disjointed, childish writing. The moment he had been deposited in his chair by the healer, Gilderoy pulled a fresh stack of photographs toward him, seized a quill, and started signing them all feverishly. You can put them in envelopes, he said to Ginny, throwing the signed pictures into her lap one by one as he finished them. I'm not forgotten, you know. No, I still receive a very great deal of fan mail. Gladys Gudgeon writes weekly. I just wish I knew why. He paused, looked faintly puzzled, then beamed again and returned to his signing with renewed vigor. I suspect it is simply my good looks. A sallow-skinned, mournful-looking wizard lay in the bed opposite staring at the ceiling. He was mumbling to himself and seemed quite unaware of anything around him. Two beds along was a woman whose entire head was covered in fur. Harry remembered something similar happening to Hermione during their second year, although fortunately the damage, in her case, had not been permanent. At the far end of the ward, flowery curtains had been drawn around two beds to give the occupants and their visitors some privacy. Here you are, Agnes, said the healer brightly to the furry-faced woman, handing her a small pile of Christmas presents. See, not forgotten, are you? And your son sent an owl to say he's visiting tonight, so that's nice, isn't it? Agnes gave several loud barks. And look, Broderick, you've been sent a potted plant and a lovely calendar with a different fancy hippogriff for each month. They'll brighten up things, won't they? said the healer, bustling along to the mumbling man, setting a rather ugly plant with long, swaying tentacles on the bedside cabinet and fixing the calendar to the wall with her wand. And, oh, Mrs. Longbottom, are you leaving already? Harry's head spun around. The curtains had been drawn back from the two beds at the end of the ward, and two visitors were walking back down the aisle between the beds. A formidable-looking old witch, wearing a long green dress, a moth-eaten fox fur, and a pointed hat, decorated with what was unmistakably a stuffed vulture, and, trailing behind her, looking thoroughly depressed, Neville. So, Vanessa, what did your imagination do in that scene? So, I, I smelled perfume... And I think the reason for that was I was like, this won't smell like a hospital. People live here, right? And I'm like imagining like some fairy lights up and like actually it's quite cheerfully decorated in here. This healer is clearly very gifted at their job and is like very positive. And so I'm imagining a very cheerful vibe. And there have been a lot of Christmas visitors in and out who have gotten Mm -hmm. dressed up. And so I am imagining that like, Neville's grandmother and like other visitors have had like lovely perfumes on. And so it like smells lovely in here. The other thing that like on a sensory level I really experienced was just like the deep sadness of Lockhart signing those headshots. And I like really heard the like scribble and then the like flip of paper as he is sending it to Ginny and feeling as Ginny like offended and also like I know that they're magical but I'm picturing like those glossy eight by ten right like on photo paper and so the like feeling that like matte cool feeling of the back of photo paper Hmm. and like the sticky Mm -hmm. top as Ginny and like collecting them and being like this is so degrading but yes hand me another one of these photos please I will play this game So those were the two sensory things that came to me was the smell and like the touch of the photos. What about you? 
Yeah, I, I found myself sort of in the experience of the healer, mm. I think. You know, just as a pastor, I tend to visit memory care units a fair amount, just, you know, parishioners who have developed dementia or Alzheimer's. And just kind of the behavior of some of the residents and the behavior of the staff just reminded me of some of my visits to those units and nursing homes and other assisted living facilities. So I was getting different smells, but also that kind of antiseptic smell that kind of overlays these scents in hospitals and other kinds of wards. You know, I've never been a medical staff or care staff in a memory unit. So this is all projection based upon just, you know, speaking to folks and spending some time in these units. But in my head as the healer, I was very much sort of like the matter of factness of kindness, right? Like this person has a job to do on the ward and part of their job is to be kind and patient with these folks every day. But it's also a job that she does every day. And every day she has to be just as cheery and just as chipper and just as kind to these folks. And that is genuine. It's real. I mean, that's not, I'm not saying that she's performing this genuineness, but also that like I, in inhabiting her mental space, I was just also thinking about like, oh, there's practical stuff that needs to get done to care for all these people in their illness. Like it's partly being cheerily saying here are your christmas presents but there's also like do i need to change this sheet is this person need this care the practical things that have to go on that have to be managed when you have a ward full of people like all that stuff's also running through this healer's head while she's offering these genuine chipper but also you know surface level niceties and just like that that kind of sense of dividedness when you have one of those responsibilities or have the responsibility to, to care in a situation like this was what kind of landed with me yeah. The only other thing that I noticed was the sound of the curtains, right? You know, that sound when they're wrapping a curtain around you in a doctor's office or whatever, the like metal on metal sound. And so that being opened and like Neville being revealed, I think we, I at least often equate opening of curtains as exciting, right? Like it's the theater or you're yeah. opening your curtains to the day. I opened my curtains this morning and it had snowed a few inches. You know, it can be like this hopeful act and often opening curtains at a hospital has a very different connotation. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for that beautiful sacred imagination. Thanks, Vanessa. This week's voicemail is from Jamie and AJ is going to read it to us. Hi, team. I'm re-listening to the book seven episodes and I'm at the part where the trio is hanging out in Grimald Place. As of when I'm writing this on the current read through of book five, that's where the kids are at now too. So I've been thinking about how this house is hidden on a street in London surrounded by muggle houses. My question is why? The blacks have hated muggles for generations. They're one of the most wizard supremacist families there are. Why would they choose to live surrounded by muggles? We've seen other wizarding families living apart, the Malfoys, the Lovegoods, even the Weasleys. And we know there are places like Diagon Alley, Hogsmeade, and Godric's Hollow that are all wizarding communities. So why would the muggle-hating blacks put their ancestral home in the middle of muggle London? The answer I can offer is that maybe the blacks go back far enough that the family was living there before Grimald Place was developed into a residential area in London, and now they're stubbornly staying there out of a you-will-not-replace-us mentality. Thanks. That's a great theory, yeah. Jamie. Thank you for that voice memo. You know, that's immediately what I started thinking when you said that, that there's some kind of like stubborn, I didn't have this phrase, but you chose the perfect phrase, Jamie, like you will not replace us stance to it. I also wonder if, you know, if somewhere back in the history of the Blacks, 
if you go far enough back, there isn't the kind of anti-Muggle hatred. Mm -hmm. You know, that we invent our histories, that we tell stories of our families, and we tell ourselves that every Black ever always hated Muggled. But maybe the Blacks who built this house were fine living in a Muggle neighborhood. And, you know, hatred is always constructed, and it was constructed after the founding of this house. So either way, I think you're right, Jamie, which is that this family is doing it in defiance. And it was a detail I had never really paid attention to, but I'm really grateful for you you pointing it out. Me too. I'll also add, it's just, it's possible that at some point the Blacks were muggles and married in, right? Like, even this yep. idea of pure-bloodedness, right? Is, exactly. We yeah. know that, like, Voldemort is not pure-blooded. We know that people who often scream the loudest are whatever it is that they're mad at, at least partly. Uh, Hitler was not blonde-haired and blue-eyed. It's very confusing. So I don't know. Maybe the Blacks were muggles. But thank you so much, Jamie, for calling our attention to this. I had never thought about it. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Rose Youngquist, who was 92, was a grandmother with a quick wit and a love of cats and good chocolate. Felissa, who was 55 and lived her dream of being a mother. Marie Lanker, who was 68, an artist, a fellow, and a friend. and Connor Williams, who was 25, and a beloved brother and son. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, who would you like to bless from the chapter this week? Vanessa, I would like to to bless Augustus Pye. Mm. Augustus Pye is the trainee healer on Arthur's ward, and he's the one who has the idea of literally using needle and thread to sew flesh back together. Can you imagine? <laughs> no. Who would do that to poor innocent people? Bless Augustus Pye for trying, and his willing and curious patient, Arthur, for giving giving sewing a try when we're at the work of healing. And just like, it's like... The muggles aren't idiots, right? It's like believing in a culture that's different than your own. I don't know. That's right. Like knowing that there's some virtue in it, yeah. right? Yeah. And remember, Hermione's like, actually, it works pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Right? They stitched up my ankle, Matt. We just pulled out the stitches. Yeah. It's closed. It looks know, beautiful. Yeah. My scar. Yeah. Last time I was on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text talking about this chapter, I remember being torn about the limit of my commitment to only bless women. And luckily, Ginny Weasley is an absolute star in this chapter, so my blessing fell easily to her. But I remember so desperately wanting to bless Neville, and I'm very excited that I now get to bless him. I think that there's a great art to receiving gifts. I think as I yell at my mom a lot to please stop buying us things, like I am not a gracious receiver, of things that I do not want exactly. I'm like, now I have to take care of this thing. I have to thoughtfully dispose of it. What you've actually given me is a task or something to dust. I deeply resent it. And so I do not have this skill, 
But we see Neville interact with his mom in this chapter, and it's the only time we we see Neville interacting with his parents. And we don't know what exactly it is, but Alice Longbottom seems to be giving her son these kinds of wrappers all the time. And, hmm. you know, Neville's grandma is like, you don't have to take them all the time, right? Like, you have enough of these to wallpaper a room. And first of all, it does seem as though Neville actually cherishes the objects, which I do think is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I do think saying, mm -hmm. like, one day she could stop giving me these, right? Like, she touched it and therefore it is blessed, right? Whatever it is, like, these are precious. But also I just think that the act of receiving something that has been given in the spirit of generosity is an act of service, even if it is something that you don't want to receive. But I just want to offer a blessing to Neville for his, like, incredible wisdom in cherishing these, like, quote-unquote pieces of trash and in receiving them so generously. Next week, we're reading Book 5, Chapter 24, Occlumency, through the theme of release with Casper. Matt, we have a couple of very exciting classes available that our listeners should know about. One is the Publishing Crash Course with Mackenzie Lee, and the other is a journaling as a sacred practice class with our sometimes co-host, Jolie Doggett. It is going to be amazing. Everybody sign up at NotSorryWorks.com. And we have an incredible group chaplaincy course called Showing Up for Trans Kids, and that is for sale at NotSorryWorks.com also and starts March 8th. And of course, you can get ad-free episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or signing up for our Patreon. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Jamie for her perceptive voicemail. To Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Natalie Fulkert, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. When I said I was ready, I was lying. I should have been open to the page. Chapter 23. I apologize. There you go, Patreon. He always... Chapter 23, Christmas. <laughs> that's that's absolutely true. Not true. <laughs> Not true. At all. Chapter 23. Chapter 23. Oh, how do I speak? I, saw every, I feel like, all right. Chapter 23. Matt's just getting Christmas back from a trip. Christmas on the trip, closed so. ward. I am. Chapter 23, Christmas on the closed ward.